I want us to uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12 as we continue in our uh, study on vital signs in the body of Christ. We're looking at the vital sign of ministry. Uh, any true biblical church will always manifest the love of Christ that it has experienced in acts of love towards others. So a few weeks ago, uh, Sandy was blessed with a word from the Lord she shared with us. And she shared with us a word that Sunday, plenipotentiary. And I remembered that word, and I've been thinking about it. And it was the word that is the authoritative speaking of the gospel, which is evangelism for the church. Today, I want to lay another word on you. And how many of you have ever heard the word ecclesiology? It's not like a dental condition or anything. (laughs) What do you compare this to? All right, ecclesiology is a theological word. I, I was attempting to have a PowerPoint slide up, and I, it didn't work out. So the word is made from two words in Latin, and they kind of translate in English in the same way. The first word is ecclesia, which means the assembly, and then logos is the word that means word or the study of. So if you think of the word biology, it comes from the word bios, life, and logos, the word the study of, okay? So ecclesiology is the study of the church, the ecclesia, which is the Greek word for the church throughout the New Testament, this assembly of God, okay? So if you're familiar with the uh, the denomination, the assembly of God, their name comes from that word ecclesia, a group of people that gather to honor and worship God. So the question I want to bring before you this morning is, how is your ecclesiology? Okay, and ecclesiology is, how is your understanding, your thinking about the church? Okay, because there's a particular way in which the church manifests itself, and that is in the realm of service to one another. And that one anothering that comes up 60 sometimes in the New Testament is the benchmark of the church. It is the evidence of the greatest sign of God's work, which is love. And so this morning, I want you to think about how am I doing in terms of my doctrine about the church? What do you believe about the church? You know, this morning, you probably said to your mate, we're going now. Are you ready to go to church? I want you to think about that word. I want to challenge you to dig down in your life and say, do I have sound thinking, biblical thinking? about the gathering of the people of God, and it's God-intended and God-ordained purpose. Last week, we focused our attention in this realm on the idea of attitude, and the theme is everyone needs to get the attitude of Christ. You need to watch your attitude. You need to guard your attitude. Attitude is a settled way of thinking that is reflected in our behavior. How you think determines how you act. So when a parent doesn't like their child's actions, they say to them, watch your attitude. Make an adjustment there, and how you live will begin to change. Today, I'd like us to look at the actions of people who have adopted a new attitude. And the text that we're going to use this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read verse 12 down through verse 13, and then I'll reference a couple other verses along the way. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body, and so it is with Christ. 
For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, irregardless of our ethnic background, whether Jew or Greek, irregardless of our status, slave or free. And we were all given of one spirit to drink. Now, here's the thrust of this text by and large. Believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God and perpetually filled by the Spirit of God so that they will imbibe the attitude of Christ and begin to take on the actions of Christ, loving acts of service towards others within the church and without. And so let me get this distinction out of the way up front, okay? Particularly this morning, I'm talking about the actions that we take towards one another in the body of Christ. I am not in any way by that emphasis diminishing that we are called to love all people. All right, Galatians 6 tells us that we are to love everyone, but especially the household of God. So God gives us a priority in our lives that we're to watch out for one another because when we're healthy as a body, we have a greater impact on the world around us. So the service out there never substitutes the service inside of the church. And the healthier we are, the greater impact we have on the world around us. Okay, so we focus on church health so that we can make a difference in the lives of those around us. So I want to approach this discussion this morning from two angles. First of all, I want to give you three word pictures for the church to build up our theology about the church. And then I want to answer three questions that I'll pose to you this morning about church life. So three word pictures, first of all. They are metaphors, if you will. They're word pictures that clarify and call for commitment in a certain direction in relationship to one another as we gather. And as we think about ourselves as the body of Christ. The first one, the church is the bride of Christ. It is, and I'm going to state it this way, it is the object and visible expression of his affection. The church is, Paul says in Ephesians 5, the bride of Christ. She has particular interest to him. She has intense interest from him. She is his bride. He loves the church. And for her, he spared no expense Ephesians 5 says he loves the church and gave himself up for her. He goes on to say, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, which is his body. And I, I cannot study my ecclesiology, my thoughts about the church, truth about the church, without coming away saying Jesus is passionate about, Jesus gave himself for, he loves the church, am I? We are also his building, Matthew 16, 18. So Jesus says, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is placed on earth as God's offensive line against the encroachments of evil. And that is the calling that we have. We are the bride of Christ, object of his affection. We are the, the building of God. We are what he is doing on planet earth to make his name great. The aim, I think, of that text, when Jesus says to his disciples, guys, in all of their struggles, he says, I, through you, weak, fallen, will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overtake what I am doing. Folks, for us, us that breeds a degree of confidence and hope. And so we must always say then that the physical building of the church that we're now engaged in a discussion about, and in a, in, in a discussion about sacrifice for, we must, must never lose sight of the fact that God is about building people. And buildings are only means to get that done. And inasmuch as that means enhances our ability to build the church in the name of Christ, 
we can pursue that goal. Okay, but Jesus is interested in building what's sitting here and what is dispensed out into our community through the week. The last thought that comes from the text we're in is that we are his body. Three pictures. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says this. Now you, and this is after an extended discussion about all the struggles and difficulties within church life. He says, now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of it. So body means the 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 vessel in which Christ is living out his purposes today. You, church, are his body. And what people in the world around you see of Jesus, they see when they look at you. And we can never talk about the church apart from a focus on individuals who make up part of a larger group, a body. So don't think about my message today as a challenge to the group. It's a challenge to every part of the group. Because every part of the group determines the strength of the group. If the parts of the group are weak, the church is weak. But when the constituents of the church are strong and growing and loving Christ and defeating sin and experience victory by the power of God, the church and its witness grows. And a watching world sees something in you that they begin to desire. And that's part of our potentiary, plenipotentiary work. Okay, it's part of how we make Christ known. I have found that as we are the body of Christ, as we are the building of God, as we are this affectionate object of Christ, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, as we are that, opportunities to share Jesus pop up on the screen. They show up. People see you serving. People see you acting like Christ, and they start to ask. And that's a beautiful time to begin to share our faith in Christ and our love for Christ. I believe that we have allowed the church in America to fall from its God-given place. If you drive through the landscape of America, any city, you will see prominently within those cities on the landscape something called a steeple. You will see facilities that were built to say that this is central to this community. It was the highest point in the town. It was to make much of what Christ was doing. We live in a country that has lost the centrality of the church. We live in a country in which the church has lost the centrality of why they exist. Our ecclesiology is a mess. And our commitment to their church, our understanding of what she is by God's grace, I think is very weak and needs to be challenged today. We live in a culture that tends to use church, to shop church, to involve ourselves in churches and to commit to churches based upon convenience rather than personal commitment. We in America have commitment issues, and God does not. God is utterly and completely devoted to building his bride. And he wants you and I to respond to this call. One writer has said that we in the church have a tendency to date the church in America and not to commit. And what that leaves us with is a weak, anemic church. And I, I, I want to, I, I in this sermon, I want to challenge you to ask yourself a question. Do I love the church that God loves? Do I love it the way he loves it? Do I understand it the way he explains it and purposed it? Do I get it? Because when I do, it is going to bring about a cosmic shift internally about how we live. I thought about commitment in America. I thought we get it in relationship to school. Most parents that I know don't let their kids skip, skip school. 
My dad got this. I used to trap animals when I was a kid, which I, I, I regret in many ways. But when I was about 13 years old, I got shot by a skunk right across the forehead in the hairline. Now, my dad had thoughts about school. It was mandatory. My dad was a high school dropout. He, he signed himself out illegally when he was 16. He signed his mom's name to get out of school. And I was not going to get out of school. He sent me to school like that. All right. He was committed to my education. And it, no, folks, listen, we live in an age in which people will slip out of church for almost any reason thinkable. It's not a priority. It's not a value. When your kid's on a sports team, you won't miss that. Because there's something about the affirmation that you get out of that and your child gets out of that that you love more. And I want you to think about it. I want you to think about your commitment to your family and your commitment to your family of God. We live in a culture in which you get attaboys for being a good parent. You know what most people pursue? They pursue the affirmation of being a good parent more than they pursue a passion for the body of Christ. I don't see them in conflict. I see them living together. So don't say, well, does the family come first or the church? That's what Satan wants you to think about. God wants you men and women to love your family and to love your church and to be devoted to both. And to live in a balance that says, obviously, I love the church and I love my family. Okay, I think I challenged you with this about a year ago. I have a wife who loves her family and who loves the church. And she has worked that out in an amazing balance. Never sacrificing her family and never sacrificing the church. Folks, that's what God wants. Us to be so passionate about what he is doing that our commitment level increases towards his aims, objectives, and purposes. And so I encourage you. Jim, you shared with us a year ago a word that God put on your heart. You ask a question. You ask us, are you all in? I think this is what you meant. Okay, are, are we as a church fan? That has not left me. Are we as the people of God committed sacrificially to what God is doing. Now, I'm going to challenge you. We have commitment issues as a church family. We can have 220 people one week and 170 people the next week. Why? Can I just venture a guess <laughs> that our understanding of ecclesiology, of church life and God's purposes, God's truth that he wants to express to the church is not what it should be? Because when it is, it will begin to stabilize what happens. It'll stabilize our giving. It'll stabilize our attendance, our commitment to what God is doing. God loves the church. Are you all in? Are you devoted? Is the church a dear place to you? And then three questions in light of these three pictures that I think give a strong call and affirmation of God's affection for his church and his commitment to it, to the sacrifice of his son. Three questions. How should the church work? How should it work? What should it look like? And I think to answer that question, to develop theology about the church, you have to go to the touchstone of truth. You have to go to the word of God and say, okay, instead of me saying what I want the church to be for me, what does God want me to be for the church? Don't shop for a church based on what it can do for you. Think about what you can do for the church, to quote a famous politician. Think about it. Am I a difference maker in my church family? 
If my presence wasn't present, would anyone even know? And the answer to that question is based on how, you, how involved you are and how devoted you are into the lives of others. It's a simple question to answer. I've recently been working on some things, finishing a house, putting in fan lights and putting in faucets. And I learned something. Inside of those boxes, there's something called a manual. A manual. I usually ignore those things, okay? Because the print's too small. And I figure, I can figure it out. It is very frustrating when you spend a half hour hanging a ceiling fan to find out that you forgot something, that the whole thing has to come down to put it back. It leads to frustration. It leads to anger issues. It leads to, honey, I am, I'm busy now. I can't talk. And all of that is coming out of a failure to look at what the, the, the designer wrote about how to do it effectively. And so we got to get back to the manual and understand the design. How does God intend for the church to work? And I want to just read a couple. I will not cover everything that's in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, I know there's issues of controversy there. Okay, I'm not going there today. Okay, many of those things are not nearly as controversial as we make them out to be. But I want to just hit on a couple verses from this text to pick on these themes of how should it work. Look at verse 12. The body is a unit though it is made of many parts. All right? Well, what does that mean? It means the body of Christ is one, but it is manifested in many pieces and parts. Okay, kind of like the ceiling fan. You lay all those things out and you say, okay, when they're assembled, this will be what I see in the picture on the box. You've got to go to Scripture and see the picture in Scripture and start to assemble it by the design of the one who made it. And we live in a world where many people are becoming designers of the church. And her purpose is being diluted or shifted. And she may be very effective at the shifted purpose, but it is not the purpose of God. And she is, after all, the body of Christ. Verses 6 through 8 gives us a little more information. It says, there are different kinds of workings, but the same God works all of them in all men. Verse 8 to one is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by that one and the same Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, interpretation of tongues. All these, and there are other lists that you can bring together. You get in the 20s when you look at the list in Scripture of spiritual gifts. And I do not believe the gifts are intended, to, the list are intended to be exhaustive. All these are the work of the one and same spirit that verse 13 says we all partake of in our salvation. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. Meaning, God, when he gives you gifting and capacities, he is seeking to assemble a complete body that is without deficiency so that she can be effective. That's what God's doing. Okay, so if you take your gift and you lessen its value by taking yourself out of the picture on a regular basis, do you understand what you're doing? Okay, you are diminishing the impact of your church family by withdrawing the gift that God gave you to contribute to the whole. So it's one picture, but it's many parts, and every part matters. Irregardless of how insignificant it may appear to some. And verse 7, I think, drives a nail in the coffin on this discussion. It's a closer. It says, 
Do not, oops, my page turned in the fan. Oops, sorry. Oh, it is a shocker. <laughs> Verse 7, it says this. Now to each one, how many is each one? The Greek doesn't help you here. Okay, to each one means what? Everyone. To each one, the manifestation, evidence of the Spirit is given for the common good. So if I take my gift and I withdraw it from the body of Christ, I am doing common damage. It is given for the benefit of people around you. It is not given for your aggrandizement or for your benefit or your experience. It is given to make much of Christ in the lives of others. And it is given for the common good. That is that there is a mutuality to what God is doing. And I think if, if you said to me, Tim, what do you think is the thrust here? I think the thrust is, Rick Warren puts it, is we are better together than we are alone. And that is by God's design. So the pride does not build up in the church. But so that we stand together. One body, many parts. I, this morning, I just did an exercise thinking about our church and our meetings on Sunday mornings. I went through how many people it takes for us to have a service on Sunday morning. Okay, and I went through various things in my mind. The setup people I put to, audiovisual, worship team, Sunday school teachers, hospitality, greeters, nursery, junior church, fellowship, compassion ministries that take place, and 180 worshipers. Okay, now, behind that scene, I find about, in my number, about 40 people on a given Sunday in our church family that are serving. That's exciting. Okay? My, the question that comes to mind, what would happen if we all got on the page? What, what would happen? And I fear that if that doesn't happen, moving to a new building. I fear that. I don't fear if everyone gets on board and says, you know what? I need to get involved in people's lives. I need to understand what my gift is before God and start to exercise that gift because we are better together by design than we are alone. Amen. Your human body has billions of parts and they all come together. And something in my case, not so beautiful. <laughs> but in many of you, something beautiful. What if God wants to take all these things. He wants to bring them together, all the uniquenesses and differences. And so here's the question I have. Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Sometimes I think, what part of that verse don't we like? Don't forsake it means make it a priority. Be there on a regular basis. Don't let small things replace big things. Don't let ancillary things replace main things. Get a grip on ecclesiology, this doctrine of the church. It's how it works. The question then you have to ask is, why doesn't it work? Why is it that most churches are anemic? Why is it that most churches don't have that, that sense of influence and power in their community? If the church is so important, then I think we as individuals, we're driven to know what stifles, dampens, deters, diseases, disables, and handicaps the body of Christ. I don't know how we can't think about that and pray that God would raise up people who have a passion for the churches, he sees it and explains it. So I thought of this, and I, I thought of reading this text and the examples of distortion of the picture, of the metaphor of the body of Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 12 says this. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, 
I don't need you. And the pictures start to get weird because then he says, if the whole body were an ear, how would that look? How would you, if I was up here this morning, it was a six foot ear. <laughs> okay, the picture, and what is, what is Paul, Paul saying? It's absurd to think that your contribution, because it is obscure in the grand scheme of things, it's absurd to think that the guy that gets up up front on Sunday is more important or more valuable to the mission than you are. I want you to think that in my pride. That's what I want you to think. Pastor Tim matters. Okay, that's Satan, folks. That's not from God. What Satan, what Satan wants to do is elevate people, wants people to think about themselves when they come in the body of Christ. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. Amen. That's the mindset, that's the attitude that determines, that determines behavior. And you have to ask, why doesn't it work? Well, because sometimes someone's saying, I don't need you. And that's the way the analogy works. Sometimes people make much of themselves. And here's what Paul basically says. And it's a six-foot eyeball is going to have a lot of irritation in its life. Right? It's, the pictures are meant to be absurd to give you an, oh, I see what we're doing. Verse 26. And I love this. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's this mutuality. That our... Concern for one another, our concern for, the, for, the, for Brian and Lynn, because I don't know how to pronounce their last name always, and for the O'Hallorans is what? They, their husbands need work. They're looking for employment. We together bear that burden for Lauren Schlaffer. We pray for her together. If one part suffers, we suffer with it. That's what a body does. If my finger gets wounded like it did the other day, I have wounds, scars from working on this, some of these houses. I don't cut off my hand and say, you know, we're away with you. You're all damaged. You said that would be stupid. No, all those parts work together. They're vital to a healthy body. Practical ways, I think, that we fail to do this and, and why we don't value and engage in body life. One thing I think is at times people have wounds. Life together can be tough sometimes, can't it? We're imperfect. We miss calls that we should have made and we let each other down. If you came here looking for a perfect church, you might want to keep moving on. <laughs> and if you find a perfect one, don't join it because you'll ruin it. We have wounds. It's part of life. You know why God talks about how to forgive each other when there's an offense? Because there will be offenses. That's why. In his wisdom, God is, God is not surprised that the disciples squabbled with each other. Jesus got down and watched the feet of the disciples in the midst of their squabble to straighten out their attitudes so that their actions would align with his purpose for the future. That's what he was doing. If your king does that, then you should do that for each other. It's that simple. Don't let your wounds keep you from the happiness that comes and from the joy that comes of being part of the body of Christ. That's a prison Satan wants to lock you in. Bitterness over wounds that you nurture and nourish. I call you to repent of that. We also have attitude issues. And we all do. We all do. Sometimes I think of myself as a pretty serving person. That makes me laugh. Like I'm pretty willing to go help someone. I am not always willing. And I don't always like doing it. You know what a slave, I told you this last week, a slave is someone who simply does not think about themselves. 
What would happen if we had a church where people began to think less of themselves and more of each other? What would happen? We would look so much like Christ. So Paul says, have this mind in you that was in Christ. Choose to be a slave. We also, in our culture of busyness, have time issues. And they keep us. Now, it's not that we don't have enough time. That's a lie that Satan sells to us too. Last time I checked, Lucas Cusimano and I have the same amount of time every day. Right? Every day. It's not that I don't have much, enough time. It's how I'm using the time that I have. You know what? You've got to make choices. We all do. To cause and to see the body of Christ become the priority that it is to God. We've got to start to think seriously about our lives. We have plenty of time for what we love. But sadly, it leaves us empty and unhappy and unfulfilled. Selfish pursuits never satisfy. And I would challenge you in your use of time to think, how much of my time is devoted to service of others? And this depends, understand this please, seasons of life, how much of time you can devote to things. Okay, I, I, I want a, a nod to that. As you get older, your capacity to go out and your capacity to involve yourself in people's life, it changes, but never give up the passion to be involved in the lives of others in the ways that you can. For Cindy Mazzone with seven kids, okay, that probably takes a little of your time, Cindy. <laughs> so I don't mean to make people feel guilty about how they're involved, but that you're involved. Does that make sense? And as the seasons of life change, but if you're always allowing your busyness currently to be an excuse for a lack of involvement, you'll never get involved. Okay, there is a level to which you can commit and serve and encourage others in your current situation, every one of you, because God has gifted every one of you to make a difference. He believes in you because his spirit is present in you. And he wants to use your life for his glory. We have relationship issues that keep us from being the body of Christ. We, in our culture, lack an understanding of the value of vital relationships. I've talked about it for 25 years. And I feel like a failure. But I realize it's part of the culture that I live in. With the amount of hours that the average person spends watching TV and taking their kids to games and all the things that we think we need to do. And understand how I'm saying that. All the things that we think we need to do, that we don't need to do, that steal from the main reason for which we exist, to make much of Christ in the body of Christ. I just... I just want to challenge you to think about it. Because this body thing that Paul's talking about is all about being together. And when other people think that, well, you know, my function really doesn't matter and they go AWOL, the body is hindered, it's hampered. And I would love to see a strong church emerge in this community where people believe that our relationships with each other, which will take time, are vital to Christian living. But the essence of it, Jesus chose 12 and was with them. And he was with people that wounded him deeply. But he never let it be an excuse for sacrificing the reason for which he came. And I call you to the mind of Christ. And I think lastly, we lack a mutual concern for each other. But I don't know how we can look at these passages of scriptures and realize that the church is a mutual company. 
It, it, we exist for the common good, folks. The Spirit of God comes in you, not so you can enjoy it, but so that you can participate and contribute to the common good, the manifestation of the Spirit for the benefit of those around you. What is God speaking into your life about the church? And lastly, I ask this question, what would happen? What would happen if we devoted ourselves more fully? And I'm encouraging you not today, not to take a quantum step. I'm encouraging you today to take a step towards adjusting your life schedule to value the body of Christ. What would happen if we did this? If we allowed the Holy Spirit to speak and direct, to impress and guide, what would happen if we listened and did what he says? And just open our hearts. First say, okay, I understand. There's something bigger at play in my life than I have understood up to this point. Holy Spirit, when you speak, I want to listen. And say, God, speak, Lord, so that your servant may hear and do your bidding. So that our witness in this community will be enhanced for the glory of God. I think it would be exciting. A few case studies in Scripture that I, I, I thought about. Uh, Philippians 1.27, a verse I preached on a few years ago. Paul says, I hear that you are contending together as one man for the gospel. That you are contending, you are locked arm in arm. You are serious about your call to be the church. 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul can say to the church, you church that have devoted yourselves fully to God and to one another, the word of the Lord is sounding forth from you. We don't need to say anything. We don't need to introduce the name of Jesus. They already know it. We can pick up where your testimony of selfless service is leaving off. We can do it. Acts 2, they were together and amazing things were happening. And there were no needs. People saw them in their community and knew that the body of Christ was sustaining them. What would happen? John 13, by this the world will know that you are my followers. If you selflessly love one another. I've always heard people say that at the beginning of the word pride is the letter I. And I noticed something this morning. I noticed that the, at the middle of the word sacrifice is I. I was talking to Mindy about this on the phone over an announcement. I just brought it up to her because it was on my heart at the time. She said, yeah, and I's at the middle of Tim. That hurt. <laughs> I W Min for the sake of this discussion. You are saved to serve, but you are saved by the gospel. You said, Tim, how, how, how do you motivate people to change their perspective, to adopt a sacrificial outlook on things? All I can tell you is look at what we looked at last Sunday morning, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life for his bride, the church. Sacrifice. What's my struggle with sacrifice? I, I, me. That's my problem. Pray for God to give you the mind of a servant. Pray for God to make you a slave, a person who doesn't think much about themselves, not much of themselves, but doesn't think a whole lot about themselves. And God, by his spirit, will free you. In the last uh, 18 to 20 months, most of you know I've had experienced a shift in my life and my in ministry and all these things. And uh, I've I bought a couple houses, and they're... Some of them were pretty horrifying. I mean, like, 
I have people walking in. I'm thinking, hey, I bought this. What do you think? They're speechless because they were afraid. They were scared stiff. They were looking like, oh, what were you thinking? I said, well, you have to have a vision. You got to see what it can be. All right? And most people can't see that because they were focused on difficulty and struggle. And how, how are you going to do this? How are you going to have enough time? I said, I just won't sleep. <laughs> and I, I, so I've made some decisions and my ignorance has caught up with me in certain areas for sure. And I have watched, I have watched God sustain. I have, I have looked back numerous times over numerous days and weeks when I was going to attempt something that I was ignorant about. I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And God would send the right person at the right time to help me do something I couldn't do on my own, but that we could do together. And all this week, this is what's been impressed on my mind as I've thought about my own experience where I have sat back and thought, okay, I'm going to install this HVAC ductwork in this house. I've never done that before. <laughs> well, I'm going to do it. I'm like, and God sent Dave Rader says, hey, I'll come help you with that. And I'm like, okay, I could, I could probably do it alone. And then when we're there doing it, I'm like, I could have never done this. <laughs> so people walk in the house, I show them the HV. I said, look what I did. I couldn't have done it unless someone came alongside and said, I'll help you with that. Folks, I'm telling you, God has, when you step out in faith, he's going to begin to honor that and send the resources that you need to get you to the other end of his purpose. I have a friend, Chris Ponectero, in Allentown. He is a property management guy, owns a business, manages 400 houses in his, in his mid-30s. He's a guy of the street, and he wouldn't mind me telling you that. He's, he's a street guy. He's become a friend of mine for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, when, we, when I first met him, he told me, he said, hey, uh, you know, sometimes I, I watch, uh, uh, what's the witnessing program by Kirk Cameron? Way of the Way of the Master. He said, I watch those interviews on TV. I said, oh, really? He doesn't know I'm a pastor at this point. I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, I find that fascinating. And then he says, that's what you're doing to me, aren't you? <laughs> well... <laughs> Yes, yes, that is what I'm doing. Sharing, sharing Christ through whatever. This guy has become a friend of mine for whatever reason. And I'm attempting stuff with electrical that I shouldn't be attempting. And here's what I do. I hit a point where I, I get scared, like scared stiff, frozen. I, I can't do it. And I call Chris on the phone. And together, what happens? Also, I become something I am not. But as I yield to the guidance of a friend who's come alongside to assist, all of a sudden, there, I, I just finished a whole house in Oxford. Folks, I want to tell you something. I am not that smart, but God has sent the right people at the right time. And together with the team, things have happened that I couldn't do alone. And I, here's what I do. I sit back amazed. And I, I, I have just driving my van, just come into tears of joy and gratitude to say, God, thank you. And over what? This, what could you do in our church what would you do in our church if we got over our hang-ups and fears and started to understand biblical ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, and started to say, I need to change how I live so that God can use us together to do something that we could never do on our own. The pastor can't change his church, folks. He can preach the word of God. God can use that to change your heart. And as you change, the church changes. God wants to do good things to this church. We are his body. May he, by the Spirit, unleash a powerful work in our community that will attract the attention of unbelievers and that will allow the building we're going to to be an instrument to that end, building 
what God is doing for his glory. Amen. If you've never trusted Christ, I would encourage you, look, he sacrificed everything to serve you, to bring you into this family for his glory. He wants to rescue you from your sin by the power of his spirit and change your life forever and give you hope and a future. And I encourage you this morning, trust the one who gave us all so that you could be part of this family. Father, help us.